from New York, this is Democracy Now! Israel's decision to evacuate one million Gazans is basically forcible transfer. That is a war crime under international law. On the other hand, it's completely unimplementable. The United Nations is calling it horrendous. Last night, the Israeli army ordered 1.1 million residents of Gaza to evacuate their homes within 24 hours and flee south in what many Palestinians fear is the start of a second Nakba. The U.N. said the mass transfer of half of Gaza's population, including all of Gaza City and the hospital as well, would have, quote, devastating humanitarian consequences. We'll go to Gaza for the latest, as Israel's bombardment is now in its seventh day. We'll also look at how the Biden administration's increasing military and diplomatic support for Israel, even though human rights groups warn Israel is committing war crimes in Gaza. The message that I bring to Israel is this. You may be strong enough on your own to defend yourself, but as long as America exists, you will never, ever have to. We will always be there by All your that side. And more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israel's army has ordered 1.1 million civilians in the northern Gaza Strip to evacuate southwards within just 24 hours from last night, an order the United Nations called impossible without devastating humanitarian consequences. The ultimatum came as Israel massed troops, tanks and armored vehicles in southern Israel for a widely anticipated ground invasion of Gaza. On Friday, Israel dropped thousands of leaflets across the Gaza Strip, warning Palestinians to leave their homes or risk death. The Norwegian Refugee Council condemned what it called the collective punishment of countless civilians, among them children, women and the elderly, which it said would amount to the war crime of forcible transfer, unquote. Israel's ultimatum came as its unrelenting bombardment of Gaza continued for a seventh day. This is 14-year-old Janan Alatar, whose uncle was killed and whose family was left homeless by Israeli airstrikes. It was my sister's wedding, and we were making sweets when the airstrike started. So we left the house. We were packed on top of each other in the car, and we drove directly to the school here. But living in the school is not nice. And my uncle went back to the house, and they bombed it while he was there, and he was killed. Health officials in Gaza say at least 1,500 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli strikes, including 500 children. Israel reports it dropped 6,000 bombs on Gaza during the first six days of the assault. Hospitals are overwhelmed with the wounded and dead and increasingly rationing fuel to operate life-saving medical equipment. Human Rights Watch has confirmed reports of Israel firing white phosphorus munitions during attacks on Gaza and along its border with Lebanon. White phosphorus poses a high risk of excruciating burns and lifelong suffering. Its use as an incendiary weapon in civilian areas is a war crime. Israel denies using white phosphorus. Israel previously used white phosphorus in attacks on the Gaza Strip, including in 2009. 
thousands of residents of southern Lebanon have fled their homes near Israel's border amidst fears that cross-border skirmishes between Israel and Lebanese militants could escalate into a war. The exodus continued Thursday as Iran's foreign minister, Hossein Amir Abdullahanin, traveled to Beirut, where he met with Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah. Iran has warned the war risks spreading to other fronts if Israel keeps bombing Gaza. Hamas's armed wing, the Al-Qassam Brigade, says 13 of the hostages it took during its weekend attack in southern Israel were killed by Israeli strikes on Gaza over the past day. Meanwhile, Israeli relatives of those slain and kidnapped by Hamas are reeling from the ongoing tragedies. This is Anat Moshe Shoshani, whose grandfather was killed and grandmother taken hostage by Hamas during a raid on their home at their near Oz kibbutz. She's a 72 years old woman. She's sick. She has heart issues. She watched her husband die right in front of her. And right after, they got her on the motorcycle. And she had to hold the terrorists that just murdered her, her husband. They were together for over 50 years. They built the kibbutz with their own hands. Hamas has killed over 1,300 Israelis and taken about 150 hostages. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited Jordan today for talks with King Abdullah and Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. Blinken will also visit Qatar, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates and Egypt over the weekend as he looks to secure the immediate release of hostages held by Hamas. His trip came after U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said the Pentagon is not placing any conditions on its weapons shipments to Israel. This is a professional military uh, led by professional leadership, and we would uh, hope and expect that uh, they would uh, do the right things in the prosecution of their, of their campaign. Austin spoke Thursday from NATO headquarters in Brussels. Today, he's in Tel Aviv, where he pledged ironclad U.S. support for Israel during a press conference with Defense Minister Yoav Gallant. The French government has banned all rallies in response to the Israeli bombardment and total blockade of Gaza. On Thursday, police in Paris used tear gas and water cannons against pro-Palestine protesters who gathered despite the prohibition. Unfortunately, we were not able to protest properly because the demonstration was banned, while those in favor of the Israeli cause were authorized. This is not normal under the rule of law. In the United Kingdom, activists have vowed to take legal action if officials ban the Palestinian flag. British Home Secretary Suella Braverman has urged police forces to use the full force of the law against protesters waving the Palestinian flag, which she said may not be legitimate if it's found to be a sign in support of, quote, terrorism. In Australia, human rights defenders are warning of the government's escalating repression against actions in support of Palestine. New South Wales Acting Police Commissioner Dave Hudson said officers won't need a reasonable cause to search protesters who attend marches planned in Sydney this weekend. I urge people considering entering the city on Sunday to reconsider. There are a number of peaceful alternatives for people um, to voice their opinion in relation to the conflict that's currently going on in Israel and Gaza.
Here in New York, Columbia University closed its campus to the public Thursday in response to two separate demonstrations led by pro-Palestine and pro-Israel student groups. In Massachusetts, the names and photos of several Harvard students who signed a pro-Palestinian letter were displayed on a billboard truck on campus Wednesday with a banner that read, Harvard's leading anti-Semites. Some of their names and personal information were also posted online. They were doxxed. That action was organized by the ultra-conservative nonprofit Accuracy in Media. The U.S. House of Representatives remains without a speaker. On Thursday, Republican Congress member Steve Scalise dropped out of the race to replace the ousted speaker, Kevin McCarthy, after 16 Republicans said they would not vote for Scalise. Supporters of Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan are rallying to shift their party's support to Jordan, who founded the far-right House Freedom Caucus and currently chairs the Judiciary Committee. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre addressed the congressional turmoil Thursday. What we're seeing is certainly shambolic chaos that we're seeing over there on the other side of Pennsylvania Avenue, and they need to get their act together. There's a lot of work that needs to be done on behalf of the American people. It looks like former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is also back in the running for his old seat. House legislative business is at a standstill until a new speaker is elected. This includes a bill to keep the government open beyond November 17th and military funding for Israel and Ukraine. Prosecutors have announced an additional corruption charge against New Jersey Democratic Senator Bob Menendez and his wife, Nadine. The superseding indictment accuses the couple of conspiring to have the senator act as an unregistered agent of the Egyptian government while Menendez was chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. The indictments allege Menendez worked to aid Egyptian officials by ghostwriting a letter to fellow senators urging they lift a hold on $300 million of U.S. military aid to Egypt. Menendez is also accused of passing along classified information to Egyptian officials, including details about employees at the U.S. Embassy in Egypt. In Colorado, an Aurora jury convicted police officer Randy Redima of criminally negligent homicide while acquitting officer Jason Rosenblatt in the 2019 killing of Elijah McClain. 23-year-old McLean, a black man, was walking home from a store when he was tackled by police, placed in a carotid hold, and later injected with a powerful sedative ketamine. Elijah's outraged mother, Shanine McLean, told reporters as she left the courtroom, quote, this is the divided states of America, and that's what happens, unquote. Sentencing for Redeemer, scheduled for January, faces up to three years in prison. A third officer and two paramedics have also been charged and are awaiting trial. And talks between striking actors and Hollywood studios have been suspended as the two parties remain at loggerheads. SAG-AFTRA said it was presented with an offer that was, quote, shockingly worthless, worth less than they proposed before the strike began, unquote. Unionized actors said they will continue fighting for a fair contract despite the setback. This is negotiating committee member Jason George. Look, we're storytellers, so this is the part of the movie where the hero gets knocked down and you think they're out. And this is the part where you double down and you come back and win the day. We all know that and we all believe that in our hearts. So, look, we're actors. We get rejected multiple times a day. We get rejected for stuff we didn't even know we were up for. So our ability to withstand rejection, to withstand adversity and to stay resilient is more than I would say virtually anybody else in this town. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. 
We begin today's show in Gaza, where Israel last night ordered the evacuation within 24 hours of all Palestinians living in the northern Gaza Strip, some 1.1 million people within 24 hours. The United Nations has condemned the order, saying it's, quote, impossible for such a movement to take place without devastating humanitarian consequences, unquote. Much of Gaza is already in the dark as Israel's cut off energy, food and water supplies. The seven day Israeli bombardment has killed at least 1500 Palestinians. Israel declared war after Saturday's surprise, brutal attack by Hamas militants on Israel, where the death toll has reached 1300. Israel's now amassing tanks on the border of Gaza ahead of what appears to be an imminent ground invasion. Some 400,000 Palestinians had already been displaced prior to Israel's evacuation order last night. Some groups have announced plans to defy Israel's order. The Palestinian Red Crescent Society said, quote, despite the occupation's threats to shell, the decision has been made. We did and will not leave. Our medics will carry on their humanitarian duties. We won't leave people face death alone, unquote. Many in Gaza fear Israel's evacuation order is the start of a second Nakba. Seventy-five years ago, in 1948, some 700,000 Palestinians fled from or were violently expelled from their homes upon Israel's founding in 1948. Much of Gaza's population are refugees from families displaced 75 years ago. We begin today's show with Mohammed Shahada a writer and analyst from Gaza, chief communications uh, at Euro Mediterranean Human Rights Monitor, columnist at the Forward newspaper Jewish Weekly in New York. He's joining us from Copenhagen. Uh, Mohammed, welcome to Democracy Now! Can you describe what's happening on the ground and first respond to this order um, from the Israeli government that half the population of Gaza, 1.1 million people, must leave the north and head south? And they gave them 24 hours last night to do it. Yes, um, thanks, Amy. I've been through at least six Israeli military operations or even more. This is like nothing I've ever seen in my entire life and nothing like Gaza has ever seen in terms of magnitude, scale, level of destruction and death. Entire neighborhoods are totally unrecognizable. With the evacuation orders, it's basically plain and, and very obvious forcible transfers. And it's most important thing about it is that it's unimplementable. If you know Gaza geographically and physically and the devastation of infrastructure there, you would know that most roads are broken. There's vast electricity, internet outages. People are not getting any news. At the same time, the area that Israel wants people to go out of is the most densely populated part of Gaza and the area with the most safe shelters, these UN schools, although not very safe because Israel bombed a lot of them in over the last six days. But it's the area with the most UN schools. It's the area with the most hospitals. And right now you have over 7,000 Palestinians wounded in Al-Shifa Hospital and other hospitals around Gaza, around the area that Israel wants him to evacuate from. So by the mere act of evacuation, many people are going to lose their lives. The other issue is that there are not enough houses, not enough spaces or shelter in the south of Gaza that Israel wants to push people towards to be in. The only realistic outcome of this is that we're going to have people just literally baking in the sun in 30 degrees Celsius temperature, about 85 degrees Fahrenheit daily in the sun, in the street, without any access to hospitals, any access to food or water, let alone the sheer terror 
of Palestinians experiencing a second Nakba. Many people there are saying we're not leaving our homes. The Palestinian Red Crescent said we refuse to evacuate because we're not going to let our people face death alone. At the same time, I'm aware that there is some pressure from European officials and the Israeli government discreetly to sort of backtrack this decision. But they are telling me quite obviously that it's unlikely they would have much influence on Israel without the U.S. coming on board. And until now, the Biden administration hasn't made its mind up about an event that's way, way more horrendous than the Palestinian Nakba. You're talking almost about double the amount of Palestinians that were displaced in 1948, just gone in 24 hours. We've been trying to reach uh, guests in Gaza, and we're not able to make any connection at this point. Mohammed Shahada, if you could explain more the conditions on the ground and the significance, as I listened last night to the general uh, director of the Palestine Red Crescent Society say, how do we move people out of hospitals with this short amount of time, not to mention more than a million people? Yes, so before the evacuation orders, almost everyone I know in Gaza, they say our knees cannot lift us up. They haven't had any sleep for more than two to three hours a night, punctuated by constant military airstrikes, because Israel dropped up until yesterday about 6,000 bombs on Gaza in six days. That's about a bomb every one and a half minutes. Every single neighborhood in Gaza was damaged. Every single street area, all the famous sites are completely gone pulverized. At the same time, I took, the last time I talked to people was this morning. I talked to at least two to three people and I lost them as I was talking with them on the line because of airstrikes or running out of electricity and internet. Israel bombed Gaza's main telecommunication company on the third or fourth day of this escalation, bombed it completely, leading to outages in vast areas of Gaza. And the last time I talked to someone, the last one I spoke to is a Gazan Irish citizen. He holds Irish citizenship, European. And he was telling me basically this. I only have few liters of water in my home for a family of six. I don't know where am I going to go. I have a few batteries and they're running out of power. And he doesn't know if he's going to stay alive. Most people I know in Gaza are uploading, literally uploading their wills and last words to their social media accounts and begging for forgiveness from anyone that they've ever wronged or done anything to and saying, please forgive us and we forgive you as well. This is what it has come down to. Former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett exploded at a Sky News anchor, Kamali Melbourne, during an interview Thursday after Melbourne pressed Bennett on Israel's attacks on Palestinian civilians. Here's a portion of the exchange. What about those Palestinians in hospital who uh, are on life support and babies and incubators whose uh, life support and incubator will have to be turned off because the Israelis have cut the power to Gaza? Are you seriously keep on asking me about Palestinian civilians? What's what's wrong with you? Have you not seen what happened? We're fighting Nazis. We don't target them. Now, the world can come and bring them anything they want. If you want to bring them electricity, I'm not going to feed electricity or water to my enemies. If anyone else wants, that's fine. We're not responsible for them. This is the point. You this keep is on, the point. You, no, no, I, I want to tell you, no, no, listen, listen, you listen no, to me right now. Voice, I've heard trying, you enough. No, no, I understand. I, I, we're I've trying to have a conversation here. 
Listen, this no, is my you're, program, you're, you're this is my show, I, and I am asking the questions. Exactly. You're raising your voice, yeah, and country, I've asked you, and, and we've already, people, we've already stopped, people, please, and let me finish. We've already distinguished between you, Hamas. Mister. I want to tell you, you shame you're, on you're, you. You're trying to speak over me. No, we no. are not, shame on you. It's nothing about pre- shame. We're trying to have a conversation about a very serious situation here, and you are refusing to address it. That's Sky News anchor Melbourne. Uh, challenging the former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, who said to him, you're daring to ask me about Palestinian civilians? Mohammed Shahadi, your response. Well, I'm afraid that this is now becoming a mainstream sentiment in Israel, and not just in Israel, amongst official European and American uh, leaders. And in the media as well, if you've been looking at what Israeli politicians are saying, about two days ago, an Israeli lawmaker, senior one um, in the ruling coalition, Limor Son Harmelech, she wrote on Twitter saying, quote, there are no innocents in Gaza, flat in Gaza, quite literally, very openly. Now we have the the architect, the godfather of the Israeli judicial coup or or judicial overhaul, Semha Rotman, he's now saying that The main goal of this operation is that a Jewish kid can walk freely in Gaza alone if there would be a Gaza at all. So this sentiment is shared widely. But what I find most striking are two things. Number one, European diplomats in the occupied territories are telling me that their leaders, their bosses, their foreign ministries for the last at least five to six days were not bringing Gaza up to their Israeli counterparts at all. That's the same with the U.S. government. They're not bringing what's Israel's conduct in Gaza at all, aside from the issue of the humanitarian corridor. This might change now with the forcible transfer of 1.1 million people. But at the same time, this level of complicitness I've never seen before. And it's the same with mainstream media. I've seen circulation of allegations that were completely debunked of extreme horrendous atrocities like mass rapes and decapitation of babies being taken at face value by virtually all the mainstream media circulating immediately and without the slightest work of journalistic integrity or investigation, although it was later debunked. And at the same time, when we have Human Rights Watch coming out yesterday and saying we have solid evidence of Israel using phosphorus munition on Gaza's civilian population, that's a chemical incendiary weapon that burns on immediate and ignites an immediate impact with oxygen, and it burns flesh and bone, and it it cannot be turned off, and the toxic fumes of it can be lethal and can cause respiratory, permanent respiratory damage. Human Rights Watch says Israel is using it. This is a war crime, and virtually not a single mainstream media is picking up and reporting on this. So it's unimaginable, the level of complaint that I see in this round of escalation. Nobody is calling for de-escalation or ceasefire, not even a humanitarian ceasefire, although they did that in the last major war on Gaza 2014, that was the United Nations and the US, they had a humanitarian ceasefire for 72 hours. But this time there's not even any talk about it, not even a thought for it. And that I find most frightening. I get a lot of questions from my colleagues, family and people I love in Gaza asking, are we gonna stay alive? One of my friends, she says, I just gave birth about a month ago. My baby is clinging to me. I'm afraid if he's going to die from a heart attack from the airstrikes and fear and terror. At the same time that she's afraid that her husband might get killed or taken away from her if there is a ground invasion. At the same time that she's afraid that she's going to end up permanently a refugee in the Sinai desert. These 
things are unimaginable horrors that are inflicted on Gaza right now with no one intervening to stop it. This is pure madness. Uh, on CNN last night, his former military Israeli analyst uh, said it, um, our goal isn't turning Gaza City into a parking lot. Our goal is to turn Gaza into a Hamasless region. Uh, Mohammed Shahada, if you can respond in this last answer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As I said, Israeli leaders, politicians and members of the ruling coalition are openly admitting that the goal is flattening Gaza. Semha Rotman, that's, as I said, he's the architect, the chief architect of the Israeli judicial overhaul. He's one of the top lawmakers in the Israeli ruling coalition. And he's saying openly, the goal is that a Jewish Israeli kid can walk in and out freely if there would be a Gaza at all. He's admitting it very openly. And I've seen the sentiment not just from Israeli politicians, but from Israeli media as well, from Israeli pundits, analysts and commentators. Voices of reason in Israel are now becoming a shunned minority. Many of them are afraid to speak up because now the atmosphere is so hostile, so polarized and toxic and dehumanizing for people in Gaza that whenever Gaza is brought up, the only thing that's brought up with it is Nazis. Can you imagine if any person in, in Gaza would refer to Israel as such, how many condemnations would be poured on their heads immediately? Mohammed Shahada, I want to thank you so much for being with us, usually based uh, in Palestine, in Gaza, uh, writer and analyst, chief com communications at Euro-Mediterranean Human Rights Monitor, columnist for the Forward newspaper, Jewish Weekly, here in New York. As we turn right now to Svenkin van Birdsdorf a former EU, European Union ambassador to the occupied Palestinian territory, served in that post up until July. Your response to this order uh, by the Israeli military that half the population of Gaza must move within a 24-hour period starting last night from the north to the south. Sven Hung van Bergsdorf. Yeah, thank you, Ms. Goodman. And, of course, uh, I can fully second uh, what— um Mohammed Shahada has so well described as the absolute catastrophe which um, uh, two million Gazans are facing. Um, let me start by saying um, I'm fully aware of this deep hate and frustration and despair which befell the Israeli society. And when they speak of their 9-11, of what happened last Saturday, I understand, of course, that view and that emotional tension they are under right now. And that makes it so difficult to have a rational discussion, not only in Israel, but also in Europe and in the US. But we have to be aware that we still are governed by international law. We haven't, we have left the medieval times. We have rules of conduct for war. We have rules of conduct of how apply humanitarian principles. And no matter what Hamas did, it does not justify the incredible use of lethal force without distinction and without proportionality as far as the Palestinian population is concerned in Gaza. Distinction, proportionality, and precaution are sacrosanct principles for the code of conduct of armed hostilities. And Israel as a democracy cannot escape that and has to be held accountable. It cannot be that Israel has a carte blanche because 
terrible acts, brutal, gruesome acts happened to 1,000 or even 1,200 Israelis. That is not the excuse you can use to flatten Gaza. And let me come back to the point of um, what you exactly ask. The announcement of the IDF to basically forcibly evict more than one million Gazans from their homes in the northern part of the ship is likely to be criticized by international legal experts as a war crime. If there is no provision made for ensuring humanitarian access and exit and the necessary facilities to accommodate the basic human rights to water, energy, food, and physical safety, let alone health. And this is also clearly signed in all international conventions Israel has ratified and is accountable to. So it is unexcusable if the international community does not use its pressure point to hold Israel to account to what they have pledged before the international community uh, to respect. I understand the emotions. They are in very high right now in Israel. I'm in retirement right now in France. So I'm not more on the post, but I can understand that. But as I said, we all have to uphold international law, international humanitarian law, and international human rights law. That is the yardstick. That is the most important measure of conduct for all of us. I want to turn to Ursula Gertrude von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, who arrived in Israel today, and play for you a comment she made last year about Russia targeting civilian infrastructure in Ukraine. War crimes, targeted attacks on civilian infrastructure with a clear aim to cut off men, women, children of water, electricity and heating with the winter coming, these are acts of pure terror, and we have to call it as such. So the, she's talking about what Russia is doing in Ukraine. Would this also apply to Israel and Palestine? International law applies everywhere. Human rights are universal, indivisible, and inalienable. This is the EU position across the world. Let me ask you about a statement by Jan Egland, the secretary general of the Norwegian Refugee Council. He's got dozens of workers in Palestine. Um, we just spoke to Yusuf yesterday uh, from the Jabalia refugee camp is where he lives. He came in, talked about the difficulty of even moving to be able to talk to us to find a space that had electricity. Today, we can't reach people in Gaza. But Jan Egland, the secretary general of the Norwegian Refugee Council, uh, commented on the Israeli relocation ultimatum of Gaza. Gaza civilians saying the Israeli military demand that 1.2 million civilians in northern Gaza relocate to its south within 24 hours absent of any guarantees of safety or return would amount to the war crime of forcible transfer. It must be reversed, he said. Um, your response, Van Kuhn, Van Bergsdorf. I fully subscribe to the statement of Jan Eklund uh, as an international legal expert, as a political scientist as a former diplomat and as a human being. There is no doubt that this has to be respected. And by the way, let me just underline this. If Israel decides to close its crossings in Jerem Shalom and in Yeres, 
Egypt is bound by international law to open its border crossing in Rafah. And it cannot be that Israel threatens to bomb corridors and transports uh, carrying humanitarian uh, facilities and equipment. It cannot be. This is another war crime if that would take place. Egypt also has to ensure that its obligations towards refugees under international law are fully respected. So it's not just ensuring that in the space of the South, if one were actually to displace people, all the facilities are there, fully knowing, knowing that this amounts already, this forced eviction to a war crime, but also the ability for people to be able to exit for humanitarian reasons, this highly dense populated strip in Gaza in the South would also mean for Egypt to open its borders. And of course, it has community of providing the necessary provisions to facilitate that people can live there. Again, this can only be a temporary solution. It cannot be that, as Mohammed Shahada said, we are basically witnessing a second Nakba, whereby the entire Gazan population is forcibly evicted from their homeland, which is Gaza, from their homes. And that is also something I think we have clearly to underline when talking to Israel and when engaging with them on finding a solution. Let me just say an important thing right now. The key political measure right now is to de-escalate and stop any further war crime and try to ensure that the people of Gaza are fully safe and protected. And of course, I understand that there's an important issue of freeing the hostages. I don't know whether it's 150 or whatever the number is. But it's very important that this process be done as soon as possible and through negotiations. This is also a very important element which we have to be aware of. So humanitarian access and exit and freeing the hostages and de-escalating are the three key, I think, objectives one has to engage on them. We want to thank you for being with us, Sven Kuhn van Bergstoff, former EU ambassador to the occupied Palestinian territory, served in that post up until July, uh, speaking to us from France. When we come back, we'll speak with Rabbi David Bassiour. One of his congregants was killed Saturday uh, in uh, the Hamas attack on one of the kibbutzes where he was living in Israel. And we'll speak with Nora Arakat, Palestinian human rights attorney. Stay with us. When we are coming on my shilling in a shainum helm door, if in tunkel a million at toys and shops or store, Bapuzerin mischtrauen, when the zones are oisgesprungen, Badi menschen herren singen, Reuten reusen, reuten blumen. Wenn wir kommen und marschieren, weil Männer euch kämpft, Mann. Weil Freuden sind und Brüder, Mames seinen mir gewinnen. Zwei von uns kein Schweiß nicht drinnen, von Geburt bis Ende Leben. Herzerhungern euch Kerper, geht uns Freud und geht uns Blumen. Bread and Roses by Brivela, 
That's an anti-fascist klezmer folk punk group. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We go now to Seattle, Washington, where we're joined by Rabbi David Basur of Kadima Reconstructionist Community. One of his congregants, Chaim Katzman, died on Saturday in the Hamas attack on the kibbutz where he was living in Israel. Chaim's mother said, quote, I just think it's chilling. My father grew up in Poland. He survived the Holocaust with false papers. My mother was a refugee from Germany who left after Hitler came to power. It's chilling to me that my son died hiding in a closet, she said. The death toll in Israel has now topped 1,300 after Saturday's attack. Meanwhile, the seven-day Israeli bombardment of Gaza has killed at least 1,500 Palestinians. Rabbi David Bastior, welcome to Democracy Now! Condolences to you and your whole community. And I say that for Chaim, uh, the Ph.D. student who returned to Israel, lived in uh, kibbutz and was killed on Saturday, um, part of your community, and also um, for what is happening in Gaza, because you are well known for speaking out uh, on behalf of Palestinians as well. Uh, Rabbi Basur, tell us about uh, um, Chaim Katzman, what happened to him, and what you feel needs to happen right now. Thank you for having me, Amy. Um, and thank you for those condolences. Um, Chaim dedicated his dissertation to all life forms that exist between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Um, and so I join in that dedication today um, in speaking with you and your viewers. Um, Chaim was a, uh, a very warm, very, uh, very loving, very humble, and very willing educator and student in our community. Uh, he came to us from Israel, where he grew up, um, and he uh, was in Seattle studying for his Ph.D. Um, I had a very last-minute opening uh, for a Hebrew teacher in our program for young people, um, and he applied, never having taught young people before and never, taught, never having taught Hebrew to Americans before. Um, and yet he was willing, he was game. Uh, he was creative. Uh, he became beloved over the two and a half years that he worked with us and our young people. I have very fond memories of talking about uh, the politics of the situation with him during the pizza dinner break on Tuesday evenings um, in Seattle um, here on Duwamish land. Um, and he will be missed. Um, I last saw him in 2021 when he came to defend his dissertation um, at the University of Washington. Um, uh, and I learned of his death uh, first thing Sunday morning. And if you can talk about um, what happened on the border, the Hamas attack, uh, called the worst mass slaughter of Jews since World War II, and yet why you continue to talk about the end of the occupation and how critical that is, the occupation of Palestinian territories. <sighs> Yeah. Um, thank you, Amy. Um, the, uh, the attack against civilian Jews in Israel on Saturday was shocking, um, was terrifying, um, was awful. Um, it, uh, it shook many in my community and myself uh, to the core. Many Israelis in my community themselves uh, critical of the Israeli government and the occupation, um, but having family 
um, throughout throughout the state. Uh, myself having friends uh, in the land as well um, was uh, it was terrible to hear about just as I was setting up for Simchat Torah services on Saturday morning, uh, where we then uh, danced around with the Torah um, to music similar to Brevila, who we just heard. Um, we, we did so to sanctify life, and that ultimately is why I have been outspoken um, against the Israeli occupation um, for a few decades now. Um, life is the utmost. It is uh, the most core teaching um, that I have received from my tradition, from my ancestors. Um, the idea that never again means never again for anyone means that uh, in the West Bank, and certainly in Gaza right now, where we are on the verge of a complete nightmare, um, must be spoken out against, must be uh, called back toward reason, toward the interdependence, toward the ways in which uh, Jews, Israelis, Palestinians, and everyone living in the region, our fates are intertwined. Bombing uh, is bombing all of us is bombing hope, um, is bombing reason. We need to de-escalate the situation. Um, I can do what I can do from Seattle. We all must uh, move out of hopelessness and into action by either calling our representatives, by coming together, by reaching out to Palestinian friends in the diaspora, um, to reaching out to Jews, Israelis, who have friends and family in harm's way. The situation has been uh, terrible for many, many years. And the context of the occupation of um, the atrocities from for the last 75 years um, must be reconciled. To face them is not to say um, anyone is bad, no one deserves to be killed. And yet we have to face them. We have to make things right. It is the teaching of the tradition that I came up in and now represent as a rabbi. I want to turn uh, to and end with the words of Chaim's brother, Chaim Katzman's brother, Noe Katzman, speaking on CNN. The most important for me, and I think also for my brother, was that his death won't be used to kill innocent people. Um, and sadly... Uh, my government, our government, my government is using cynically the death of people to just kill. Like they promised us, it was gonna bring, it's gonna bring us um, like security. But of course, it's not security because they always tell us, oh, that if we're gonna kill enough Palestinians, or they're gonna, so it's gonna be better for us. But of course, it never brings us peace and it never brings us better lives. It just brings more and more terror and more and more. Uh, people killed, like my brother, and I don't want anything to happen to people in Gaza like it happens to my brother, and I'm sure he wouldn't have any uh, either. So that's my call to my government, stop killing innocent people, and that's not the way that brings us peace and uh, security to the people in Israel. That's Noy Katzman, the brother of Chaim, who was killed by Hamas in a closet in his kibbutz on Saturday. Uh, Rabbi David Basur, I want to thank you so much for being with us of the Kadima Reconstructionist Community in Seattle, Washington. 
Coming up for more on the Gaza crisis, we speak with Nora Arakat, Palestinian human rights attorney, back in 20 seconds. Ramzi Abdurradwan. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Last night, the Israeli army ordered half the population of Gaza, 1.1 million residents, to evacuate their homes within 24 hours from northern Gaza to the south. And what many Palestinians fear is the start of a second Nakba. The U.N. said the mass transfer of half of Gaza's population would have devastating humanitarian consequences. This comes as Israel's bombed Gaza for seven straight days, killing at least 1,500 people. Joining us now, Nora Erekat, Palestinian human rights attorney, associate professor at Rutgers University, author of Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine. She's speaking to us from Philadelphia. Uh, Nora, if you can respond to this order and what's happening in Gaza. Good morning, Amy, and thank you. Your reporting has been an oasis in a sea of warmongering across mainstream media, for which I have deep contempt at this moment. They have mobilized almost every racial trope of savagery, barbarian. They have built on Islamophobia and the infrastructure of the war on terror to create a common sense, logical conclusion that war is inevitable and whatever consequences come out is the fault of Hamas, thereby further blaming the victims for their own uh, killing and massacres. At this point, we have to understand that there is no military solution. There has never been a military solution to this. Hamas cannot be eradicated. As we've seen right now, Palestinians are being killed, pulled from out of the rubble. We have not given them hope. I saw a young girl staring in trauma at the screen, her entire family decimated. What will happen to this young girl in 20 years? What will we tell her? that Israel had no choice, that this was your fault, and now your future is to continue to be stuck in an open-air prison, there must be hope. And that hope lies in a political solution and in the responsibility of the international community to dismantle an apartheid system, to dismantle prolonged military occupation, the longest in the world, to lift a debilitating siege that has condemned Palestinians to slow death this is a human-made disaster, a catastrophe, according to the World Health Organization. This is not a crisis. It is a humanitarian catastrophe. If we are to create a future, it has to begin and end with a political and diplomatic solution. We have this update. Palestine's Ministry of Health said seven Palestinians have been shot dead by Israeli forces in the occupied West Bank today. Um, 500 Palestinian children have been killed in Gaza. And at least Hamas is saying that 13 of the hostages have died in the Israeli airstrikes. These are hostages that Hamas took uh, from the Gaza border. Your response to all? 
It's devastating, Amy. All of us are watching this. But one of the things that we've been emphasizing is that although what we're seeing is is devastating, we've also been laying a pathway out of it. While international human rights organizations and Israeli human rights organizations came to near consensus in 2020 that Israel oversees an apartheid system, a crime against humanity— What is the greatest crime that is sustaining this ongoing structure of violence? There should have been mobilization to impose weapons sanctions on Israel, to impose a diplomatic solution, to force Israel in order to dismantle this racist colonial structure that has basically condemned Palestinians to permanent subjugation. It is the failure of the international community to mobilize that has now produced this outcome. It is all of our responsibility. Responsibility. There is blood on all of our hands. And now the way out is not a military solution. We have to de-escalate. There must be a ceasefire. There must be a recognition that Hamas, unlike these awful comparisons to ISIS and al-Qaeda, is actually a nascent sovereign of the Palestinian people who has only targeted Israel, that gives them the right to use armed force, though that right is not qualified. That right is not, excuse me, unqualified. They cannot use it however which way, based on on ongoing trauma and violence, but it must be recognized that as a nascent sovereign, they are representing a Palestinian's people struggle for freedom. And as we've seen from the broad Palestinian public, institutions, civil civil society organizations, other political parties, they have all insisted that responsibility for this lies at the feet of Israel. The Haaretz editorial team has also said this lies in the responsibility of Israel. Israel. This is not to say, this is not about finger pointing, nor is it about bean counting the dead. There is tragedy on all sides. But if we are interested, if we are interested in not only ending this particular crisis, but of also achieving a durable, truthful, long-lasting solution, we have to go beyond this moment to dismantle the structures of violence that are sustaining it and creating these tragedies that are hurting everybody and will spill beyond Israelis and Palestinians throughout the region and throughout the world. I want to ask you about the White House just saying that Gaza City's evacuation is a tall order. Uh, the Israeli army's call for more than a million people to evacuate North Gaza, a tall order, the White House has said, adding the U.S. understands Israel is trying to give civilians fair warning. Your response, Nora Erika? That is so cynical. That is so cynical and can only be corroborated by an irresponsible media that has failed to show decimation of Palestinian communities, the attack on shelters, the attack on refugee camps. What warnings? To what end? Palestinians have been under siege for six years. There are no humanitarian corridors. The one corridor with Egypt was bombed by Israel. The minister of Israeli defense literally said that there will be no There will be no exit, that there will be a siege, that electricity will be cut off, that water will be cut off, that Palestinians are human animals. There has been a priming that all of these mass atrocities will be accepted by a population who will watch it with lament, but think to themselves, but what else was Israel supposed to do? We are all being primed to accept mass atrocities. This, historically, is the playbook of how genocides happen. 
what we are seeing is a genocidal campaign. You cannot forcibly transfer 1.1 million Palestinians in a 225-square-mile enclosed area. There is nowhere for them to go. The largest hospital, Palestinian hospital, that is literally on life support, no pun intended, to stay functioning, is in the north. Where will these Palestinians be treated? What we are seeing is an ongoing shrinking of Palestinian land, is an ongoing, is an ongoing campaign to take that land without the people. They want to shrink and concentrate the Palestinians now below Wadi Gaza. In, in what is an untenable situation, as much as we think that this is about war, it about war and conflict and perpetual animosities, this is about land and water. And there is only one viable future. We either all live together or we all die together. And despite all of our appeals for us to survive and live together, the international community, mainly the Western governments led by the United States, the European um, capitals who have already cut off aid to Israel, France, which has banned uh, Palestinian protests, Germany, which has banned Palestinian protests, are intent on a, a, a military option where there is no outcome. Military solution will not produce an outcome of a viable future for anybody. You know, I already played this, but I'm going to play a much shorter clip of the former Israeli prime minister, because how significant he is, Naftali Bennett, who's now serving in the army in Gaza, um, exploding at the Sky News anchor Kamali Melbourne when asked about what's happening with Palestinian civilians. What about those Palestinians in hospital who uh, are on life support and babies and incubators whose uh, life support and incubator will have to be turned off because the Israelis have cut the power? to Gaza. Are you seriously keep on asking me about Palestinian civilians? Are what's, you seriously you? asking you me what about what's happening to Palestinian civilians? The former Israeli prime minister, Naftali Bennett, said. Your human rights attorney, Nora Arakat, your response. My response is, doesn't have to be based on any expertise in human rights. This is about morality. This is about decency. The fact that Naftali Bennett can get upset about Palestinian civilians and the death of babies in incubators should be indicative to us that Palestinians do not have the same right to survive, that we are not imposed, we are not exacting an equality and, and a respect and a decency for all civilians life. We have set up this situation, Amy. We have set up this situation where Palestinians are expected to die. And what we are seeing in this moment is now an expectation that they can die in mass numbers, that they can die being um, in, in, in hospitals where they are cut off by electricity, by the, war, by the Middle East's only nuclear power the 11th most powerful military in the world. It's a, the 12th largest military exporter, and the United States and the European community is sending them arms. They do not need arms. This is not a security situation. This is not a failure of security. This is a crisis of political will. 
Right. This is a, rather than normalize apartheid by inviting Israeli President Isaac Herzog to the Congress, Congress should have mobilized for an immediate imposition of sanctions in order to create a future where all people live, where all of us live, not just some of us. Nora Erekat, we want to thank you for being with us, Palestinian human rights attorney, associate professor at Rutgers University. You just talked about hospitals. Well, this is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. On Thursday, the World Health Organization warned the health system in Gaza is at a breaking point. The WHO said, quote, without the immediate entry of humanitarian aid into Gaza, especially health services, medical supplies, food, clean water, fuel and non-food items, humanitarian and health partners will be unable to respond to urgent needs of people who desperately need it. Each lost hour puts more lives at risk, they said. We're joined now by Dr. Zahar Salou, president and CEO of MedGlobal, an international medical nonprofit that provides health care in disaster regions. He's joining us from Chicago. Dr. Salou, we only have three minutes. Can you talk about the situation on the ground, what's possible, what is happening right now um, to the people of Gaza, especially with this demand that half of the population move from north to south? This is including the populations of the hospitals. The situation is uh, beyond uh, catastrophic. Uh, I mean, I, I don't have words to describe what's happening right now. I've been in Ukraine. Actually, I just came from Ukraine two weeks ago uh, and visited some of the areas that were hit by the Russians. I've been in Syria. I've been in Lebanon, other places. I've been in Gaza four times. But this is the worst I have seen in Gaza. Children are dying unnecessarily because of this bombing. What happened in Israel a week ago, should not justify what's happening to the Palestinian children and the women and the elderly right now, and what will happen to the futures. Hospitals are overwhelmed. We have only 2,500 beds in, in Gaza, and right now we have 7,000 critically ill, injured patients in Gaza. I've seen videos yesterday that was forwarded by Dr. Hussam, who works in one of the hospitals in Gaza, where patients are on the floor of the emergency room because there's no enough beds. Every exam bed has three children crying, and many of them are not crying because they are in shock. Doctors and nurses are in shock, not because of the overwhelming patients that are coming to the hospital, but because also they're not sure whether their families are safe or not, or whether they will live for one more day or not. There is 75 attacks, according to the World Health Organization, in the last six days on hospitals, on ambulances that led to 15 medics who were killed and 30-plus who were injured. The situation going to get worse. That means more innocent people will die unnecessarily. Our hearts and prayers are with the people of Gaza, with the Palestinian people of Gaza, who are not responsible for what happened in Israel. Every loss of life should be treated the same way. And I don't think, I, I, as, a, as a physician, I've been in crisis areas, in disasters for the past 12 years. This is the worst I've seen. And I'm really fearful for the Palestinian people and the children that have no connection to what happened in Israel. They're not responsible for what happened in Israel. The situation is beyond catastrophe. And I urge our government, because they are the only party that is able to stop this hell that is raining on Gaza. President Zaha Salul, I want to thank you for being with us, president and CEO of MedGlobal, speaking to us from Chicago. 
That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is currently accepting applications for a video news production fellow. Learn more at democracynow.org. Democracy Now! is produced with Mike Burke, Renee Feldstein, Augusta, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Tarina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamaria Studio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Hani Masood, Sanji Lopez. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.